0: Welcome once again to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Tim Muehlhoff. I'm a professor of communication here at Biola University. Just having celebrated my 17th year, Dr. Rick Langer, at Biola University, I'm waiting for my gift. (laughs) It hasn't quite come yet, but one of my gifts is I get to do this podcast with a good friend, Dr. Rick Langer, and we're both co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project. You can check us out at winsomeconviction.com. One of the fun things we get to do is we get to bring on people that we admire from afar, and then every once in a while, you actually get to meet them, and we've been having a great conversation with our guest, Rick, I'll let you int- reintroduce her, and uh, in our third episode, we want to tackle uh, how she's been influenced by her reading.
1: Well, thanks, Tim. And yes, uh, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior is here with us from uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, she has been an author of several books, articles. We've talked a little bit about her writing and her her, uh, role as a public intellectual. But one of the books that she wrote uh, particularly intrigued me, not just on its own terms, but also in particular related to the qualities it builds regarding our ability to discourse and engage with other people and that book is called on reading well finding the good life through the great books and so i was just thrilled when i read that title and i don't i haven't read the book i will be the first to confess it but since you're here we'd love to have you talk a little bit both about why that issue why the reading the great books is a thing that you associate with cultivating a good life and also how it might play out in the way we talk and engage with other people
2: yeah so the Two earlier conversations we had were about hospitable hospitable orthodoxy and and being confident and open in dialoguing with others, especially when they disagree with us. And we have strong convictions uh, and yet don't feel like we need to be defensive over them. And so really these might seem like two completely separate topics, kind of being a Christian out in the public square where everyone's arguing and debating and then like reading good books. But for me, one flows out of the other. I mean, Mm. I grew up reading books. Mm. Um, I grew up reading, you know, good books because I had good teachers, but I also grew up reading, you know, silly romances and horror stories and all kinds of things. But I just always had my nose in a book. And I think books have formed me um more than just about anything else um Hmm. after my faith um and it's i think what what reading all these books has done for me uh is to show me that i can see the world through someone else's eyes i can experience oh things that they experience that i would never experience but that doesn't make me less me That doesn't require that I agree with their perspective or adopt their perspective. It just helps me to see their perspective. And from that, I can take what is true Mm. and learn to reject what is false. I,
1: I would love to have you just give us like two examples. One of a book that you read that you loved because it kind of Gave voice to things. He said, "Yes, that's right, or that's me, or whatever," and then talk about a book that you've read that you love. The book, though you disagreed with, mm-hmm. the you know what the the author was was advocating for.
2: Wow. Okay. So I'm going to start with the second one. I'm going to start with with a book. I mean, this is really um, you know I think anyone who's read this book will understand what I'm saying. Um, but it's Nabokov's Lolita which is uh really a it's a story um of it's a story of a pedophile um who um who is who abuses a a young girl and Nabokov is a brilliant writer he is one of the masters of writing and what he does is to use words in such a way as to get you into the mind of his characters or his narrator and he does this with Lolita it's actually I would it's not a book that I would recommend for anyone to pick up (laughs) Um, because you know you have to be aware and even I would say you know halfway through three quarters of the way through I just I was so devastated I, I just didn't know because because he puts you in the mind of this pedophile and it's very disconcerting now it does get redemptive Toward the end, I'm glad that I finished and read it, but the power of that book is that it shows you just how powerful words are and how we ourselves, through words, can rationalize the most heinous things. That's Mm. what human beings can do. Now, Nabokov was not endorsing that. He was showing us this is what words can do.
1: Look where this goes.
2: Yes. Wow. So a book on a more pleasant okay. topic. Oh, before, yeah, we, yeah, leave yeah. That, before sure, we leave that, before we
0: leave. So the argument culture tells us that understanding is condoning. So if that's true, then reading a book like that could be, in fact, quite dangerous. Sure, but sure. But we're, we're right. rejecting that right. notion, saying, a- and we are called as Christians to empathize, to understand people in different situations Jesus's moniker was friend of sinners mm-hmm. so uh, um
2: understanding I, is not condoning understanding is true. not
0: condoning so a book like that can be profound to understand everything that you just said right. but I just, I just felt compelled to say that thank you that we have to understand we are called to understand this world as we speak God's love into it and understanding can be uncomfortable but mm-hmm. we have to do it right okay let's yeah, get on to yeah. pleasant <laughs> things <laughs> yeah. pleasant books
2: so a book well this this is you know this is my go-to favorite I talk about it a lot I edited my own edition um and uh yeah so it's it's Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre um and for anyone who, ha- who has not read it it's easy to just assume this is a romantic novel about some woman named Jane Eyre who you know is looking for love and fails to find it which is uh, that's true but it's so (laughs) so much more. Um, Jane Eyre is actually a first person narrative again showing the power of language to the way we tell ourselves stories the way we you know we we interpret what's going on around us the way we wrestle in our minds with everything um, that we're facing but Jane Eyre is really the story of the modern Christian in a nominally Christian world mm. trying to hold on to her faith in face of the hardest temptations that someone in that circumstance could. Mm. And isn't that all of us? Yeah. So Jane Eyre is really the story of all of us. Um, and her, you know, Virginia Woolf uh, famously um, wrote about Charlotte Bronte, and she rightly pinpoints the way that it's Jane's voice, that narrative voice that pulls us in and draws us in. It's like we're sitting right next to her, hearing her story. Um, and so it feels very much like it's our own story because the, the, the voice is so powerful. And of course, that voice comes through words.
0: As you were talking, uh, it made me think of a study that came out of the University of Michigan where they took the uh, interpersonal reactivity index. It's a questionnaire that asks individuals to respond to statements to see how much they empathize. And the researchers came out and they said that the group that they were working uh, with rated themselves 75% less empathetic than students from the previous 30 years. Now the researchers were like, okay, why are you rating yourself so low when it comes to empathy? Mm -hmm. They linked it to uh, reading habits. That the less these people read, the less empathetic they were. So I love the fact that the two were linked to each other. And that opens up a bunch of interesting questions. But reading broadly and exposing yourself. Now, let me get your reaction to this. I think that can be done via Netflix (laughs) as well (laughs) in a different kind of way I wouldn't want to pit the one against the other. Does that make sense? It
2: does make sense. And I want to say yes and no. Oh!
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll add it out the no.
1: I'd like to come back to some Jane Eyre things. Gone, but go ahead.
2: I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, I love film and I love, you know, some good Netflix series. Um but I, you know, so I'll use sort of the, the best film is to to think of an, an example. There is a way that film does enlarge our experience in a, in our, and and um, and and develop our empathy. I think because all story does, um, but I think that fi- film is a more viscerally aesthetic experience, mm. unmediated by words. So I do think as a good Protestant um, <laughs> that there, you know, that there is something about words um, and narrative that's because words are, are you know, are, are, are a form of mediation. So we have to translate the words. We mm. have to we have to to interpret them um, in a way that we don't have to interpret what comes to the eye. And so it's that interpretive act that's required of words that does something different to us uh, we have you know we're interpretive creatures and interpreting words just gets at something about us being made in the image of a god who is the word that seeing images doesn't
0: mm, and we're going to get to jane Eyre in a second but rick <laughs> I, but rick Uh, Jane,
2: she's she's been around for a long time. Yeah,
0: that's right. She's not going anywhere. So what you said was so interesting because Rick turned me on to this group uh, that takes movies and reinterprets them based on music. Do you remember this, Rick? You mentioned The Sound of Music, the trailer. Oh, yeah. But they make it into a horror story. And they simply do it by the music they play. And they do these really quick cuts. And they also took silence of the lambs and made it into a romantic comedy simply based on music
2: i need to see oh you things. have to you have it's, to see it it it's
1: is
0: downright creepy it's, but, um, but 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 but, fast, but the fact
1: that it works y- you got it, it that totally works.
0: so i do li- i do agree with that point you're saying that that's not there when you're reading a book uh, but, but, but music, it, I, I, Rick, I laughed out loud watching The Sound of Music as a yeah. horror story. And it, it absolutely works based on the music cueing you.
1: This, this was out of anxiety for a thing where I had done some filming for a thing we were doing here at Biola for a, a project. And I had spent almost my entire day being filmed by this film crew. And in my mind, I know they are not going to use more than three minutes of what I said. And I'm like, somebody asked me how to go and said, I have no idea. (laughs) Did I make a horror film? Was it Silence of the Lambs or Sound of Music? I have no idea. And that's partly this issue of the the power of sound, the visuals and all this. I had full control over the words I said. But by the time you put them and edit them together... All bets are off. So yeah.
2: Well, guys, I'm here for two days to give a series of talks and attend a conference. But you, but my my trip here just peaked. <laughs> this is what I. This is the stuff I came for. I am so excited to know about this.
1: <laughs> well, so let me pick up uh, Jane Jane Eyre, and I teach a class called Money, Sex, and Power here for as uh, an advanced integration seminar so thinking biblically about these sorts of notions I spend a fair portion of time in, in the sex part of that talking about marriage and one of my concerns is that we seem to have a very um very contemporary notion of what marriage is that is tightly tied to the ultimate validating force of romantic love mm-hmm. And it strikes me that a novel like Jane Eyre actually pushes back against uh, a notion of marriage and helps us realize that people in another generation simply conceived of marriage in a profoundly different way. And it isn't at all clear to me that we're right and they're wrong. Right. So I wonder right. if you might – I I don't want to – try and uh, misquote or uh, miscount the plot of Jane Eyre when, when you're sitting here with us you're way better at doing that but talk to us a little bit about that kind of a notion and how the the mm-hmm. fictional a fictional story may help you enter mm-hmm. into a, a understanding of a thing like that.
2: Well I teach the English novel and I teach it specifically in the context of the history of the novel so this is actually something I mean you've just I, I'll try not to you know, teach the whole course here, <laughs> um, but when you know, so this this is one of the values of studying the novel uh, during its first two centuries of existence because we start with Samuel Richardson's Pamela, in which, spoiler alert, a young <laughs> servant girl wins her reward uh, for remaining virtuous by marrying the man who tried several times to rape her. Mm. Wow! And that's considered like a reward. You know, he's wealthy. And then we move to something like Jane Austen, where it's a a much, um, you know, more pleasant world, and yet these women in her novels are very constrained by money, more than anything else, um, in their marriages. And then we move to Jane Eyre, where we're getting a little bit more of the influence of um, the previous romantic period, and yet it's still sort of a tempered view of marriage. Um, And... You know, it's all just—it's it, all a, a little course in the different views of marriage, just in in two centuries. I mean, human history is much longer, uh, and the the truth of the matter is, this is something else that I touch on in in my classes and have written about, um, and I think I write about it in On Reading Well. Um, the evangelicals really were the purveyors of what we call companionate marriage yeah this idea that marriage should be based on compatibility and you know friendship not just property um and politics now i think that's really good um i prefer that model of marriage but it also has some pitfalls in the sense that if you know if 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 we think we've married our soulmate and then you know after a few years you know kind of runs out then we think that the marriage is a failure um i have counseled Um, a number of my friends and peers and students who are younger along these lines, um, who have, because they have thought that their husband or their, you know, and usually I'm talking to the women, that their husband should be their best friend. Um, and he turns out to not be the person (laughs) who likes to do every single thing that they want to do they think that the marriage is a failure and it's like no the idea is a failure Mm. um marriage is for something and 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 to go back to on reading well which we haven't really gotten to specifically um in that book i talk about both the classical and the christian understanding of virtue Um, Mm. and virtue is always determined by um telos purpose and so every good question I think begins uh, with first asking what is the purpose mm. of it um, and marriage is a good thing to ask that about because we have a lot of different answers today don't
1: we yeah we do so let's get back to the book tell <laughs> okay. us a little bit more about that you know how you framed it and what you were hoping your readers would how it would impact your readers.
2: Yeah. Um, so I did, it was sort of accidental. That's how most of my books turn out. I, I start out with one idea, and it's a process of discovery for me. Um, and so in the process of writing this book, I um, uh, my editor just suggested to me that I talk about... Um, Practices and Habits. He knows I've been heavily influenced by James K.A. Smith's work. And so he thought, well, we'll apply that to literature. And I said, okay. And where that took me was to sort of, I can be very literal. I'm Baptist. Um, So (laughs) so I guess I can be very literal. I said, okay, so Practices and Habits, that takes me to Aristotle and Virtues, right? And and so, yeah. (laughs) And I said, I don't know anything about Virtues. So I needed to study Virtues and Virtue Ethics. Um, And so I just began to do that and thought wow I want to write a book that explains what each virtue is um, and how we can see that in works of literature mm. that I that I love I want you know, knew I was writing a book about books and I thought this is an interesting framework and so um, it ends up being a book that's sort of half about virtue ethics Mm -hmm. Um, and I choose like the 12 uh, you know the cardinal virtues the Christian virtues and the heavenly virtues Uh, there are lots of lists there are many more virtues out there and then I choose works of literature that I think tell us something about those virtues not necessarily I'm not saying that this this book the purpose of the book was to teach this lesson but rather by reading well you can discover something about this virtue in the book and but but i i am by no means saying that you should read every vo- every book hunting for a virtue it's just one way of demonstrating that reading good literature well forms us
0: hmm. can um, you give us an example yeah, just yeah. P- yeah pick one and yeah, what book yeah,
2: yeah. um so in um I chose, let's see which one is my favorite one. Um, though they're all my favorites. Okay, so I I chose um, um, Huckleberry Finn to talk about the virtue of courage. And courage, You know, with as with all virtues, a virtue is a moderation between an excess and a deficiency. So if we say, let's just say that, and part of the problem with studying virtues is that our Words in English are so limited. Um, And so let's just say that um, the quality that constitutes um, courage is like chutzpah. Let's just say it's that, right? (laughs) Um, To use a different word. Too little of it is cowardice, Mm. but too much of it is recklessness. And so it's therefore not courage. So the virtue of courage has to have just enough not too little or too much and so um, so for example in Huckleberry Finn no spoiler alerts hopefully you've already you know we've got we've got um, Huck's friend um, Tom who goes out of his it's it's funny because the story is satirical he goes out of his way to increase the danger of their adventures (laughs) because he just wants to have adventure that's not courage because he's he's putting people unnecessarily in harm's way I show that that Hawk does in the story demonstrate courage. But I show that the person who demonstrates the most courage is the runaway slave Jim, mm. because he ends up risking his life in order to save uh Tom's life. Um and so that's real courage. And so so that's just an example of, you know, one of the chapters on one virtue and one work of literature.
1: It strikes me one of the benefits of learning courage that way is is kind of fostering a bigger imagination for what courage might be than what we get in just in our daily lives. Because sometimes we may have that demanded of us, Mm -hmm. but usually that isn't our norm. And part of what enables us to perform well is Mm -hmm. having our imagination stretched a little bit about what what courage might look like.
2: Or I'd say in our everyday lives, we have lots of opportunities to commit the error you know to to like Mm. to commit the vice we think we're being courageous when we're really just being a jerk
0: yeah yeah
2: you know so look
0: i'm stepping into your realm but isn't this aristotle's golden mean yes isn't that what oh thank you (laughs) that was awesome (laughs) and (laughs) that's that's in the book but i think that's important is to say it, it can go too far right a good thing right can be misapplied And so we watch a movie in one of my classes. I I was trying to Google the name of it, and I couldn't find it. But it's on the intermittent windshield wiper, the man who actually created it. (laughs) Hang on, hang on. So he does it. He shows it to, I'm not going to say a car company, but it's a very famous car company, who steals it. And they have this huge trial about intellectual property. But he is defending it but spends the next 40 years of his life, destroys his marriage, He's separated from his kids, has to declare bankruptcy, but he will not let it go because you stole my intellectual property. And by the way, in the end, as he's divorced, separated from his kids, he actually wins. Uh, Eventually, a court decides they did steal your intellectual property and you were awarded this. But in the wake was his marriage and stuff like that. So you take a good thing, which is defending uh, justice – and then it ruined everything. And I, thought, I thought that was a good example of sometimes we can be as Christians committed to something, but we just go too far.
2: Well, can I say something really trivial now? Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so, an intermittent um, windshield wiper is a perfect example of virtue because that it, because if you when you don't have that when your windshield wiper is going too fast for the rain or too slow for the rain, you're you know it, it's bad. So. I, Thank God for the adventure of the intermittent. Well, it's a reflection.
1: Most (laughs) virtues always manifest themselves in response to some external reality that you encounter. Exactly. And so what the right response is. is in
2: that moment is what constitutes virtue.
1: And on this golden mean, we talk about the golden mean, but for Aristotle, the virtues are almost never actually a mean in the sense of being halfway between the two, the excess and the deficiency. And courage is a great example where when you think about it, Courage, well formed courage, is actually closer to the rashness than it is to the cowardice. Mm. You know, it, it presses you in that way. And so, mm. because it doesn't just drop in the middle, we don't have an easy way to know exactly what it looks like. Right. And again, that's one of the virtues right. of, you know, be it a fictional right. or real life worked right. example, where you just go, oh, right, Tom's just being stupid. um but huck is being less that way and jim in particular is hitting this proper place where he's risking in in a sense everything but on the other hand doing it when it's right and needed to be done and well
2: because you know aristotle also says that no no virtue nothing is virtuous that's not that's disconnected from the other virtues right so Mm. you can't be courageous you know if you're doing something unjust so they're all that's what what that's what holds them all together is that you're you know that every other virtue is also being operated so it sounds like in your film version you know he would be have have been lacking temperance and Mm. justice Mm -hmm. and all these other things so Mm -hmm. it it just my wife purchased. put it in a
0: much crasser way, what he was lacking. <laughs> she, she had a much more stark assessment. And for those of you listeners who are ju- it's just driving you crazy, the, yeah. movie, uh, the movie is called Flash of Genius. Oh. Greg Kinnear plays Robert Kearns, a professor who invented the intermittent windshield wiper and claimed that Detroit automakers stole the idea. Yeah. It was a long, drawn-out battle. Wow. Uh, that really did take quite a toll on his mental health and uh, things like that. But I think it's a good example.
1: It is. It, at the risk of like bringing us back to the winsome conviction project and yes. the things we talk about with civility and things like that. I, it strikes me that one of our challenges for actually having good constructive discourse across profound disagreement is actually exactly a lack of virtue. And part of what made me think about that again, is just what you mentioned about virtues in a sense, well, like the fruit of the spirit, it is singular not plural so the idea is that somehow these travel together and of course the reason we have you know seven different names is because there's meaningful there's meaningful different manifestations but the idea that i get to replace gentleness with peace or something like that it's like no they, they they need to travel together there'll be aspects of the fruit of the spirit that are more relevant here than there and it it seems to me that this is that uh, perhaps a proving ground of our character in the yes. presence of the fruit of the spirit often is exactly in conversation, mm-hmm. and most frequently the place where the real virtue has to kick in is in the, the contested mm-hmm. issues that we're talking about. Right.
0: Um, well, Karen, we literally could do this all day, and in fact, we have done. We've this done all pretty morning. close to it <laughs> yes. all morning. <laughs> but you, ha- you are here visiting Biola University, and uh, there's a president's lunch where I think you're going to address some of the topics that we have covered in this podcast. But we just want to say thank you so much. This has been a delightful and, I hope, really encouraging, challenging conversation for our listeners. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And I do want to thank you for uh, popping your head up in the public sphere Mm -hmm. because I I often liken that to playing whack-a-mole where, Mm. you know, you, you pop up and you say something and all of a sudden there's a mallet that's coming down on your head. So I want to affirm you in, exactly on the issue of courage, cultivating thank the virtues you. that mm-hmm. allow you to do that and do that well. And I don't want to take that for granted or fail to acknowledge what's demanded of you, probably on a daily basis. So thank you. <laughs> thank you.
2: you.
0: <laughs> if you go to our uh, website, winsomeconviction.com, you will see not only, of course, uh, these podcasts, but all of our podcasts are listed on our website, as long uh, with blogs. So we have some videos of us. Speaking, we really want this to be a storehouse where you can come and get everything for free. Uh, We want to be a resource. Uh, So check out winsomeconviction.com. You can check out our podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much, and we look forward to the next time.